Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. This is Bo from Running Light. I'm Peter. And we are, like I said, from Running Light Ministries. And so Running Light stands for uh, a passage of Scripture in the Bible, Hebrews chapter 12, that talks about throwing off the weight and the sin that so easily ensnares, hence running light. So instead of running with a bunch of stuff in your life going on, you can run light, run without it. So it's really cool, though. Everybody messes up the the nonprofit name. <laughs> it's like running lights. That's <laughs> usually what people say. Runninglightsministries.com. <laughs> like, what the Which, heck do you yeah. think we do? <laughs> <laughs> Which is awesome. Running lights. I love it. <laughs> We're like electricians right. who also love the Lord. <laughs> <laughs> Which is really a cool thought, actually. <laughs> oh, man, dude. What's this world coming to? <laughs> Runninglights.org. <laughs> <laughs> and then you go to it, and then there's just a bunch of runners with some lights. <laughs> lights on. <laughs> It'd be great for the Christmas time. Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> you know? Something like, sorry if we blasted your ears with the intro, man. <laughs> right? Everybody's like, whoa, that was a little intense. <laughs> anyway, this one, this session, we're going to be able to talk a little bit about something that we haven't talked about, or we talked about, but we didn't get a chance to record it. Right. 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 And that was what? Uh, the idea of how do, how do fear-based tactics work when it comes to trying to change people's behavior. Yeah, so we're talking about, uh, you know, usually sexual things, right? And right. usually that's what Running Lights works with is people that um, we call it struggle with sexual things or dealing with lustful stuff in the church. Right. And um, and in the church, it's kind of odd. We're kind of narrow-minded. We really are, man. We, we, we actually, we're actually quite binary, man. We're kind of quite plain, right? you know, so uh, we kind of tend to see that... Uh, that uh, lust is a part of our lives, and it means that all of us have everything in us that lust that pertains to lust. So, um, what that means is that it's kind of funny. But I, I, I'm reading this book by Wednesday Martin, and and she's like, "Hey, you know, women are non-monogamous. That's just a myth, and it's just a social structure." And it's and and it's like in me, I'm just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you didn't." It's not rocket science, man. Yeah. It's like just when you're lust, you know, that we are everything. I mean, some guys go, man, I can never be gay. No, you could be gay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Under circumstances, you could enter into a homosexual lifestyle. Right. You know, and um, so under circumstances, all of us could probably do anything. Right. You know, and the Bible teaches that. So right. if you learn anything from the Bible, you're not shocked by by statements um, by uh, educators or people in academia that say things uh, to the to the effect of um, uh, monogamy is a social structure uh, that that wouldn't come as a shock to us as Christians we'd just be like yeah okay like w- if what you're saying is monogamy is not normal um, to mankind I would say sure yeah, that's that sounds right. Yeah. You know, after the fall, all bets were off, man. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's normal is a Lamech having a couple wives yeah. <laughs> in the early parts of Genesis. You know, it, it's just it it can go in any direction too. Right. 
So anyway, we love to talk about these topics, but a lot of times it is talked about as um, that trying to change someone's behavior to not do something, sometimes we do use fear tactics to do that. Right. Parents do that all the time, don't they? Right, yeah. We're raising children. In fact, <coughs> you know, I would argue that the only real ways that we have to change people's behavior um, societally uh, would be fear-based tactics. Is, um, is what? Uh, me, the, the only methods we have to change people's behavior, the only ones we're employing as a society, um, are fear-based. I mean is, is that, is that kind of like what you think of like in even in Romans chapter 12 where it talks, or 13 where it says, let every soul be subject to governing authorities? Do you think that's kind of fear-based at times, like the idea of this? Um, so, for rulers are not a terror, right? Rulers <laughs> not a terror to good works, but to evil, right? So, uh, you know, when you when you're looking at the gospel, when you're looking at the Bible, um, pretty much in the old covenant, really all you have are fear-based messages, meaning that God uh, looks at His people and He makes a covenant with them, and He enters into that covenant that is built on love and it is built on commitment. But God does say. I have laid before you blessing and cursing, life and death. Choose life, therefore, that you might have it more abundantly. But then he goes through a whole list of the curses uh, that they're going to have if they do not choose his covenant. All right, so there was definitely a fear there uh, when they're relating to God in the Old Covenant. And in fact, in Romans 8, Paul makes it a point to say that now that we're in the New Covenant that's based on grace, he says, uh, we have not been adopted again into a spirit of fear, right? So his insinuation there is that the prior covenant was based on a spirit of fear, that there was uh, an anticipation of judgment, an anticipation of, of wrath if you did not fulfill your duty as a, as a Jewish man or woman. So in a sense, when people get upset at the Old Testament and say things like, man, well, it's all, you know, it's just some crazy God who's upset at everybody <laughs> and making everybody fearful. Right. In a way, yeah. Yeah. In a way, like you could say, yeah, but it only makes sense. Like, yeah, it only makes sense if something's true. Right. Right? Right. So if that judgment is true, then the fear tactic, <laughs> you know, might be a good way to go. Right. So when you look at like parents, it's like what uh, today we're employing um, a new form of parenting which is more in line of just like, well, just really have rational discussions with your children and try to show them why their behavior is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that sounds good on paper, but anyone who's dealt with a five-year-old knows that just don't work. You know, um, even if you try to have a rational discussion with a five-year-old, they're just having the discussion with you for fun. You know, like they, they're just kind of messing with you by asking you a bunch of why questions. In reality, they just kind of want to do what they want to do, and they really don't care what you think. So as a parent, you have to uh, give them an option of like, yeah, you can do what you want, but you're going to suffer consequences, either uh, whether it is by discipline or whether it is by physical consequences of your action, right? So even as a parent, really all you can employ is a fear-based tactic. Uh, you have to employ some sort of a, if you don't do this, there's going to be some sort of a consequence. Um, even if you are trying to employ some sort of a positive consequence, saying like, uh, that's why we get the the saying carrots and sticks with your kid, right? A carrot being a reward, a stick being a discipline, right? So saying if you, like a parent who goes before their kid and says, if you eat your dinner, 
I'll give you dessert, right? Um, even in that instance, you are, in essence, still appealing to a fear. I mean, what's the fear of the kid? That they won't get dessert. So it's like you still have a fear of losing the reward. So there is still a fear-based uh, tactic there. So really, all we have is humanity to work with is fear. Yeah, fear is one of the most primitive parts of our being. Right, right. Where when you look at the majority of humanity, like everyone would like to believe that humanity doesn't do wrong things because we're intrinsically good. But every single time you see a society decay into a situation where people can do wrong things without any fear of punishment, guess what people do, right? They all do the wrong thing, right? So if you study any natural disaster, earthquakes, hurricanes, floods, right? When you see some sort of an anarchy-based situation hit a place, you see people do what they really want to do right? And what that shows you, right, they loot, they hurt people, they, you know, um, react very violently, they, um, they trample people to get them out of their way, they rape, they, you know, they murder, right? So you see all these crazy things happening, and you're like, wait, wait, that's, that's, a, that's not like some criminal that's doing that. That's Bob, my neighbor, you know, that's just a normal guy who goes and does his work. So all you see is that what's really holding the average person back from committing evil. Well, it's fear. It's fear of punishment. But when you remove that fear of punishment, what do they do? They do what they really want to do, mm. which is perform evil, right? So whenever- It's kind of interesting, but even in like uh, uh, um, relationships, when people are asked like, hey, would you commit adultery if you were not going to get caught, if there was no way for anybody to find out about it, would you do it? The percentages are really high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're really high. It's people being, and the, the people that said no are just lying. No. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're right. just lying. No. It's, it is a lot of people, it is that fear. It is that fear that holds them back from doing wrong things. It has really nothing to do with nobility or virtue, right? And uh, Jonathan Edwards, by the way, wrote, at the time of his death, he wrote uh, a really amazing article called uh, True Virtue Versus Common Virtue. Uh, I encourage you guys to read it. But man, it's it's kind of hard to get through. It's kind of hard to read. It's really thick. It's really long. And it's, man, it's, you got to have definitely the heart of kind of like more of a philosopher to get through it because it is very logic-based and it's it's really interesting. But his primary point in all of it is that without the gospel, which we'll talk about later, but without the gospel, every virtue that you perform comes out of fear. Right. Everything that you do comes out of some sort of a fear or some sort of an arrogance. Right. So it's either to feel superior to others or to avoid some sort of a punishment, which essentially means that every virtue that you have comes out of a selfishness. Mm -hmm. right. But his point in it is he's like, we should not look down on common virtue, though. Because without common virtue, the world descends into anarchy. So his point is that, like, we as Christians shouldn't be like, oh, man, like, this is all selfish. Like, it's all crap. He's like, well, yeah, if you get rid of common virtue, though, what do you have? You have humanity doing exactly what humanity wants to do, which is horrific, right? It's mm -hmm. horrific. And anyone who's seen, you know, whether you've been in a natural disaster situation or you've been in a situation where people have absolute authority, whether it's in a family or a, an abusive relationship or something like that, or you've been to a country, like myself, you've been to some sort of a combat zone or something like that, and you see 
what's really in people, what people really want to do uh, when all bets are off, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's not pretty. So we shouldn't look down our noses at common virtue, but we should also see that there are limits, right? There are absolutely limits. So the main article that that I read that was really interesting to me was this article by David Lapp, um, and it's called Do Scary Statistics Change People's Behavior? And he's quoting from a book called Redirect by a psychologist named Tim Wilson. And it's really interesting because what Tim Wilson does is he goes through all the fear-based methodologies Hmm. that culture and society have used to curve people's bad impulses, and he sees how successful they are. And at the end of the day, he sees that they're pretty unsuccessful. (laughs) They're pretty unsuccessful. Uh, In fact, in every place where they use one of these methodologies, it makes people more likely to be bad than less likely. Yeah, so it's got a kind of a short-term gain, long-term pain, <laughs> right? <laughs> Absolutely. And he's mainly citing these scared straight programs, which were massively popular back in like the late 70s, early 80s. They still happen today, but they're just not as popular. Uh, but the more recent, he also goes over the more recent DARE programs, the DARE to Resist Drugs program, which I went through as a teenager, and they're still doing in schools today. So he mainly references those. Uh, The Scared Straight program was uh, a program or is a program where they get uh, convicted inmates to come in Mm -hmm. and talk to at-risk youth, people who are at risk of going to jail, like whether they're in juvenile uh, detention or whatever. And they talk to them about how horrible prison is and how bad it is and how it ruined their life in an attempt to get the kids to not do those things. Um, dare program is usually run by law enforcement agents. So, you know, you have, uh, cops or whatever, come in and talk to the kids about how horrible, uh, drugs are and how they're going to ruin your life. And that was 1978, 1978. when it first came out. Nice, man. <laughs> so yeah, you have these cops talking about that or even the sexual education program that we have. Uh, if, if any of you guys who've been through the public, I, I went through the public school sexual education program when I was a teenager and I remember that's primarily what it was. It was just like there are STDs out there. There's unplanned pregnancies, you know, so do not have sex unless you are being safe about it, right? It was very much fear-based. So he goes through all of those, right? and this is what he uncovers. I, I'm just going to quote directly from him. He yeah, says, do it. a review of seven experimental tests that measured how likely participants and non-participants were to commit crimes in time periods ranging from three to 15 months after a scared straight intervention. So he's talking about any of these programs that are supposed to scare someone straight. So 10 to f- just three to 15 months, not even that long, right? Not even years after. Three to 15 months after, found that the kids who attended the interventions were more likely to commit crimes than were kids in the control group in every single study. He concludes that scared straight programs appear to make the problems worse, right? So we're using the same kind of methodologies that you would use normally the scared straight methodology and uh, using fear-based tactics. And what he's found is that it is massively unsuccessful. And this shouldn't surprise us as Christians because when you read the Old Testament, the message of the Old Testament is how ineffective the law was Mm -hmm. to change human behavior, Hmm. right? That's why you have Israel failing over and over and over and over again. In fact, in a lot of the situations, God actually says that the people of Israel were worse, they had to actually become more sinful and more fallen than their neighbors. So the Israelites that had the law 
became worse than the people that didn't know God and didn't have the law. So even God says that this is not successful, not because the law was ineffective, but there's something in us that makes it worse. Yeah, you know what's interesting is I wonder about today, too. A lot of people, you know, are kind of, you know, pro-Israel is a real popular thing within evangelicalism. Right. And, of course, it's simply because the Bible obviously stresses to uh, a passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis early on with Abraham that uh, that God says, I will bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you. Right. And um, so, so obviously, the overall um, uh, idea is is that you know we want to love God's people Israel that even Christians are are you know our foundation is is the Jewish people and and the religion and and that um uh but what's interesting to me is even in the book of Revelation when it mentions Jerusalem it talks about it as Sodom right and um and sometimes i wonder if we don't see Israel quite like God does right you know like mm-hmm. we tend to see Israel as like, oh, Israel, it's, you know, it's it's the greatest place. <laughs> you know, it's like the promised land, yeah. and and God doesn't see it that way. Right. Where you when know? you look at the statistics, it's like I think it's something crazy. Like one tenth of one percent of Jews are messianic. Right. That's that's staggeringly low. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, staggeringly yeah. low. Um, that's much lower than virtu- virtually any other uh, state or country you can go to. Uh, those yeah. statistics are incredibly low. So you could kind of see why God would say that about his people later on. So uh, make no mistake, it is a lover's quarrel, meaning that God desperately loves his people. But if you read through the prophets, you realize that he loves them. But man, he is not happy with their actions. He's not happy at all with the way that they've been behaving. Yeah, so, it says here, and, and the dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, uh, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt. Where also our Lord was crucified. Right. Wow. Right. It's bizarre. It is, man. It is. So we definitely, obviously, as Christians, should pray for peace in Israel. We should we should pray for our Jewish yeah. brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. But obviously, we should recognize that there is a great divide between yeah. the Jewish people and Christians. Right. There has been a a massive switch where we can't look at the Jews and say that everything that they're doing is correct or justifiable because it's not. Right. Right. It's not. Even um, though it's kind of that's kind of something that's a popular notion sometimes, right? That everything that Israel does is correct, <laughs> right? Where you know, if if I were to look at it and be like, okay, well, um, obviously, when you look at the interactions between, if I was an atheist and I was looking at the interactions between Israel and their uh, Muslim neighbors, I would definitely be like, yeah, I think Israel is definitely the more rational of the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it definitely doesn't mean that everything that they've done is correct. Sure. Right? And everything that they've done is... Or is, is godly. Is just, or, or godly. Yeah. Right. Where even, I mean, the amount of Jews who are even faithful to their Jewish roots is staggeringly mm. low. Like yeah. the majority of them are agnostic or atheist, mm. uh, which is why the majority of uh, Jews in America don't even support Israel. Right? When you look at like who supports Israel, it's like Christians support Israel way more than Jewish people do, mm, which is nuts, you know? Yeah. So it's like they're not even praying for the peace in Jerusalem, you know? Like they're, they're mainly atheists. They don't, they don't care about what's going on. They're very liberal and they, they don't care. And again, I'm speaking in generalities. I'm not stating like all Jewish people are like that. But when you look at the stats, the, the vast majority are that way, you know? And you could, you could look up, there are cool videos that like Ben Shapiro, who's a Jew, 
um, who's Jewish, and he is Orthodox. He talks about that, um, why Jews aren't even supporting Israel. And it's, it's, it's really fascinating to, to go through and to hear it. Wow, wow. Okay, we'll get back on the topic. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of sidetrack, but it's okay. Um, so in other words, what Wilson is saying is what we see played out for us in the Old Testament is there's something in our hearts. There's something in our hearts that fear will work to a certain extent, but it, first of all, does not actually change our hearts, first off, and secondly, it, can't, it isn't 100% successful. And in fact, there's something in us that's so wicked and so detestable that when something is deemed wrong, we want it even more. And in fact, this guy who's not even a Christian, he says this. He says, in other words, emphasizing to young people that prisons are really, really bad or drugs are really bad or whatever, uh, and you don't want to go there, frames them as per- forbidden and therefore increase their perverse attraction. Mm, isn't that amazing? And even if you look up just the Wikipedia on on this uh, scared straight tactic, mm. um, so changing behavior by scaring straight, that's what we're talking about. Um, but in this study, it says that it was concluded that children who attended this program were more likely to commit crimes than those who did not. <laughs> you know. So it actually makes it worse. And, and so basically what he says is this. When you have kids who are going to D.A.R.E. Park or whatever, he's not saying that like if, if you're there, you're going to do it. What he's saying is that it's made up of like three groups of people, right? There's a group of people who would never have done it whether or not they went to the class, right? The class had zero impact on them, right? They were, if they never went to the class, they still wouldn't do drugs. They still wouldn't drink alcohol. And if they went to the class, it, so it didn't change their behavior at all. But then in the other end of the spectrum, you have the kids that are already uh, going through that behavior, right? So they go to that class, and they come away from it in one of two ways. They either go come away from it, and they'll laugh at it, right? Because they'll hear all these statistics, and they'll hear all these things, and they'll know for a fact that they're not true, right? Because they're already in it, right? So they'll, they'll go to these D.A.R.E. programs, and these people will be like, man, if you're smoking pot, it's going to do this to you, and it's going to do that to you. And they'll be like, what are these guys talking about? Like, I smoke pot. My uncle smokes pot. My parents smoke but They're not like that. Like, they have jobs. They're doing this, right? So it won't resonate with them at all. And even if it did resonate with them, they don't care enough to stop, right? They'd be like, it's already, you know, it's already fun. They're already doing it, so they just don't care. Um, or the second thing I do to them, which is even more negative, is it, they can actually go through a program like that and they can believe what they're hearing. Now, the reason why that's bad is because most of these programs, they paint a picture that if you start going down this path, you will finish the path, right? So if I'm going to a program like that and I hear someone say that, I'll be like, oh my gosh, like I've already been doing this for a couple of years. I will end up like that person. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, and that person ends up living down to society's expectations and becoming worse, Mm. right? Uh, The third group of people that attend classes like that are people who are on the fence, right? They're they're people who aren't in this group of saying, like, I would never do it, and they're also not in the group of saying, people, I'm already doing it. They're kind of people who haven't done it yet. And what he's saying is that third group, that middle of the ground, it has a profoundly negative impact on them to go through these classes. Why? When they go through the classes and they hear all this negativity being leveled about drugs or alcohol or violence or something like that, what it essentially does to them is it excites an arousal for the forbidden, right? So they hear all this and they're like, man, like if this guy is spending so much time telling me how bad it is, there must be a reason. And so what they do is they then seek out that behavior to figure out why it's so bad, right? Um, So in other words, it excites curiosity, 
and people who weren't curious about it prior. So it makes it worse. Um, and again, we see this in the Bible. This is not something that we as Christians should be shocked at. In Romans 7, Paul says, I would not have known not to covet unless I read it in the law, but sin taking advantage of me inflamed my desires and filled me with all covetousness. So what's Paul saying? There's something in him, <laughs> there's something in him that when he reads in the Bible, don't do this, it makes him want to do it even more. It makes him want to do it even more. So even if he is restraining himself, the lust for it, the desire for it doesn't go away. It in fact gets stronger and it makes it more tantalizing for him, right? Which makes him more likely to engage. And when he does engage, he feels so condemned about it that he isolates more from God and more from his people and makes him even more ingrained in that sinful behavior, right? And more dishonest with the, the people around him. So um, uh, by all accounts, it just doesn't work. So Paul recognizes this. The New Testament recognizes this. The Old Testament recognizes this. And now guess what? Uh, society and psychologists have finally caught up to what the Bible has said all along that this stuff just doesn't work. I like what David V just said. He said, it's the jacked up heart. (laughs) (laughs) It really is, man. It is the jacked up heart. That's right. So um, the solution, I mean, when when we think about it as Christians, you know, know, I've been attending church since I was born, basically. You know, (laughs) I haven't gone to church since I was born. I've been in church culture my entire life. And I could tell you from personal experience that these things don't work. Meaning that when I went to church, I was getting a scared straight tactic. Um, most pastors that I heard that spoke of sexual issues, they spoke about them with fear-based messages. Yeah, and some of those fear-based messages are real common. Maybe it's like, you know, hey, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to destroy you. That could be like a fear-based tactic you're saying. Right. Or it could be something like, you know, it, you know that um, maybe taking First Corinthians, there's a passage in First Corinthians chapter six that talks about uh, a laundry list of sins, hmm. and and in that area, then it then it says those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right, and and that might be a way that we teach people within the church, like, hey, if you're doing these things, then you know obviously you're not in the kingdom of God, and and. And we might make it in a real uh, kind of a simple statement like that. But uh, are you saying that that we're using fear-based tactics? Um, you know, because th- those are some popular passages that are brought up. Right, right. And so, yeah, I would say, yeah. <laughs> I would say, yeah. And if you kept reading, and the most interesting thing is that people do, I've heard a lot of people quote that. But if you keep reading in First Corinthians 6, that's actually the opposite of the argument that Paul's making. Meaning Paul is talking to, he is speaking to um, Corinthian people who are engaging in every act in that list, right? And what's his point? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified by the blood of Christ Jesus. So his point is not to scare them into right behavior. His point is to say, your identity has shifted because of the grace of God. Mm -hmm. And because of that identity shift, you now have the power and the potential to not walk in those things anymore, Mm. right? So he is condemning the false teachers that say, oh, we're saved by grace, so do whatever you want. So he is condemning those people. But at the same token, he's taking those people who are already engaging in those activities. And he's not saying, if you keep doing these, you're going to hell. But he instead says, no, 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 you've already been saved from hell. <laughs> you already have the love of the Father. You already have acceptance into his kingdom. You already have a new identity in his grace. Why would you act as you did before you knew God now that you do know him and his love? 
right? And then he goes on to make an argument about our sexuality and how it honors God and how we should utilize it for his glory, Yeah. right? Um, so it's it's not the argument that he's making. He's not making a fear-based one, but he's instead making a hope-based one. Yeah, online, uh, David says, but uh, that's a holy fear, isn't it? So mm. is there a distinction there between, like, the holy fear and then the fear of the condemnation. Right. Um, what? How would you kind of articulate that? Right. So in the Bible, it obviously does state that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Right? I can't deny that. Right? I also can't deny the fact that, you know, Jesus did speak often about the fear of punishment. He says, do not fear men who, when they kill their, your bodies, can do nothing to you, but fear him who is able to destroy both the body and the spirit in eternal fire, right? So there is a lot of talk and mention about fear in the Bible. And so the question is, well, how can you reconcile that, right? If the Bible says all these things about how fear doesn't really work and how it doesn't transform us and how it doesn't change us, right? Key passage that I go back to often. Um, perfect, 1 John 4 says, perfect love casts out fear, for fear involves torment and a fear of condemnation, right? So John says that fear has no place in love because if you're afraid of a punishment, you're no longer abiding in love, right? It would be kind of like if someone asked me, why don't you cheat on Emma? I'm like, oh, well, Emma said that she would kill me if I ever cheated on her, right? You wouldn't look at me and be like, oh, Peter loves his wife so much. You'd be like, man, Peter fears his wife a ton, uh, but there's no real love there. Um, the only way to have true, genuine love, John is saying, is if there's an absence of fear, uh, so th the question is, again, how do you reconcile all these passages? Well, um, the way that I've always said it is, and the way that most pastors say it, is that when you look at the Hebrew, the word for fear, um, y you'll see that they're, they have a much more nuanced understanding of what fear is all about than us as, as uh, Western English-speaking people. Um, a key example that I always bring up is in Psalm 130. So if you go there, the psalmist is speaking about the glories of God and how amazing God is and how and why we should submit to him. And in, in this psalm, in this psalm, uh, wait a second. You're all, what? <laughs> That's not the place. Uh, yeah, yeah, Psalm 130, verse 3. He says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand, but with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. Now, it's a very weird thing to say in the English because you would say like, okay, well, why would God's forgiveness cause me to be afraid of him? That makes no sense. Well, the reason why it makes no sense to you is once again, this passage should show you that the Hebrew understanding of fear is deeper and more nuanced than the English. And what you see when you start reading the definitions of it um, is you see that for fear, like the, the Hebrews understood fear as being in awe of something. Um, being in awe of something, and you could have a positive or negative awe of something, right? So I could either be in awe of how amazing someone is, or I could be in awe of how just or frightening something is, right? But all it's talking about is a consuming, um, consuming thought on something where it consumes all of you, right? If you have a phobia towards something and you're around it, you can't help but think about it. It enters into every single one of your thoughts. But if you supremely love and adore something, it does the same thing, right? And that's why they utilize the same word, right? So when it talks about the fear of the Lord, here's the question. Is it talking about being afraid of him or is it talking about being in awe of him? And the answer is both, 
It both has to enter into their minds. In the Old Testament, it was both because they did have to fear the judgment of God because it was coming. In the New Testament, we fear his judgment in the same way, but we recognize that it is a conquered foe. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it too a little bit um, as we're talking about these passages is there's almost like a distinction between before Christ and after Christ, right? right? It's like before Christ, yeah, the Bible teaches that we're under the wrath of God. There is a fear yeah. that we should definitely have right. of, of eternal separation from God. Hmm. Um, because obviously we have separation from God now. How do we know that? Because God's not on the planet. Right. Um, you know, he's not present with us. It's an abandoned planet. Right. And um, so, so if, he's aban- if we're abandoned here, then maybe in the afterlife we're going to be abandoned too. And, <laughs> and, and obviously uh, in the book of Romans chapter 5, it talks about that we've been saved from his wrath. So before we know Christ, that fear is definitely a fear of punishment. Mm. I would say, yeah, right. There could be that fear of, I, I, I am going to be separated from God, right. But after we come to Christ, as it says in John chapter five, it says that. Uh, let me go there because it's such a great passage. Mm. Um, but in John chapter five, it says in verse twenty-four, "Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him, who sent me, has everlasting life, and shall not come into judgment." but has passed from death into life. Mm. So death is equated with judgment. Right. You know, that no longer death separation is no longer there. So, um, and then as a Christian, I don't have my relationship with God like, oh gosh, I'm going to go to hell. You know, I sinned, I'm going to go to hell. Um, it's, it's, it's not kind of in that relationship. It's not in that vein. Right, right, right. Because it couldn't. Right, couldn't interact with the idea of fear and love. So is that why First John, you think, is saying, hey, perfect love cast out fear? Right. Because he says fear involves torment. Right. So what he's saying is that when you, if you're in that fear, that's what, non, that's what non-believers should be about. Right. You know, they should be about fearing God yeah. and condemnation and judgment. Right. But you as a believer should not be about the business of that kind of fear. Right. Because you have passed from death into life. Right. right. So... To, to put it this way, it's like we understand the wrath of God in framework of understanding his love as surmounting his wrath, mm-hmm. right? So uh, a great passage to understand this is Romans 5, where he says, The law entered that iniquities might abound, but where iniquities abound, grace abounds much more. So Paul's point is like, okay, the whole point of the law, the whole point of everything was actually to increase our understanding of how fallen we really are. Why? Because if you don't understand how fallen you really are, you won't appreciate the sacrifice of Christ. But the more fallen you recognize yourself, the more you understand the love of God because it surmounted the greatness of his wrath. So the Christian who understands the wrath of God has an even greater understanding of the love of God because you would think like, oh my gosh, like God's wrath is so amazing, but his love overcame that. Mm -hmm. So his love must be even greater. Right? If you think that God loves you simply because you're a good person, you don't understand his wrath at all. His death for you is not gracious, it's heroic. Right? He died for a good person. Well, you know, that's a heroic action, right? To die for a good person. Grace is dying for someone who doesn't deserve it. Right? So the more you understand God's wrath and you're deserving of punishment, the more you're going to be able to appreciate his sacrifice and his taking your punishment for you. 
right? So that's how we're supposed to understand it, but it's not in this fear-based Old Testament context like you were saying, Bo. Yeah, you know, I even loved what uh, Psalm 41 or Isaiah 41 says Mm. on this because, you know, we can really put down the Old Testament sometimes, and the Old Testament has a lot of things definitely we can, you know, we read and we go, man... And even in the New Testament, there's a lot of things like that we, we, we can struggle with. Right. Um, but Isaiah 41, it's kind of w- weird. We're just in these these places of judgment on Israel. Um, there's all this comfort that comes out. And there's these passages that say, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, the glory, the Holy One of Israel. So you get the idea that God's going to make them mighty. Right. Right. So he, 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 but he says, fear not. Right. So there is, you know, it, it, it sounds contradictory, like, hey, we should fear the Lord. And then God says, fear not, man, don't fear, <laughs> yeah. you know. But it, it's, it, we always have to ask, what kind of fear are we talking about? Right. You know, right. Right? Right. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah, when, when you go through the Old Testament, the beauty of it is that it does frame out this, the, the wrath of God. But there's also so much about the beauty and the love of God. Yeah. But when you get to the Old Testament, the question that any Jew would have is like, well, how do those meet? You know, how do those two things coexist? And it didn't really make any sense to them. But then through the New Testament, through the coming of Christ and the death and resurrection of Messiah, we suddenly realize how those two coexist. Yeah. Right. So, again, it's nothing new. Right. No, the Old Testament spelled it all out. It's just that in the New Testament, we understand how it works together. Yeah. In the Old Testament, they just had to have faith. They're like, well, how do I fear God and not fear God? They're like, I don't know, but I just I just trust God and I believe that he's going to make a way, right? And in the New Testament, we understand how, right? There's a way that things ought to be and there's a way that things are. There's a way that you ought to be and there's a way that you are. And how do you bridge that gap? Well, religion has always taught us you must bridge it through good deeds. You stop being who you are, you stop being better. But Christianity says, no, the only one who is the way he should be became like you and died so that you might be like him, right? That's, that's the whole message of the gospel. So the more that we accept that and the more that we believe that and the more that we trust that, the more we're going to actually change, right? Because when you get through the Old Testament, the prophets consistently speak of this promise that God's going to change the hearts of the people, right? Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31, right? There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of this promise that God's going to somehow change the hearts, meaning that the law could never change the heart, but that God's going to do a new work through his Messiah that will change the heart. Mm. How is it, 2 Corinthians 5, that we are compelled by love? The love of Christ compels us. That some, something about the love of God, something about the completion of his wrath on the cross is going to transform us into sons of God, and now we follow him not out of fear, but out of desire and love and reverence. Yeah. And it's kind of, we're talking about, you know, in, in recovery circles, kind of, cha- you know, changing attitudes based on fear. That's what this podcast is about. Hmm. And w- what you're getting at is kind of the nitty gritty of, of that. Uh, a relationship with God, you know, shouldn't be one that's based on this kind of fear tactic. Right. 
of like, if you do this, then you, you know, the motivation should be this fear right? Um, of this kind of judgment. And, but, but do you think that's infiltrated a lot of church, uh, the way we, we teach in church, um, like from what you see? Absolutely. You know, cause you know, what do you, what do you have? You know, I, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So when you go through the old Testament, like, what do you have? Well, you, you have a lot of rebellion and licentiousness, but then that's countered by conservativeness and pharisaical beliefs, right? So you have, meaning this, you have a lot of times in the Old Testament where people are like, I don't care what God said, I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to live for myself. But then you have waves where people are like, no, like we can't live for ourselves. And so they go back to that fear and they start becoming legalistic. And they're like, no, it's all about the law. It's all about following what God said. And we must do this and we must do this and we must do this. And it destroys the idea, the concept of love and forgiveness and mercy, right? In the New Covenant, as a church, we're doing the same thing, right? So there's a lot of churches that are out there just saying like, hey, God just loves you for you. You know, just believe in him, put your faith in his son, you are saved, it's okay. And they've completely missed the holiness of God. So because of that, the people who are in churches like that or believe like that, they have no concept of the love of God because they don't know what the love of God had to surmount to bring them into the kingdom. Mm. They almost think that Jesus' death on a cross was kind of like a gimme. It's like, yeah, he died on the cross for me. But it's like, but do you understand why he died on the cross for you? And they really don't understand it. They're like, well, you know, I just to show his love, I guess, to show his gratitude towards humanity. And they have like this arrogant ideal that like somehow they were already good enough without the cross, but the cross is nice. Um, But then you have these ultra conservative Christians who are looking at that and they're like, no, we need to be all about the fear of God, all about the wrath of God and all about his holiness. And so they talk about his holiness and they condemn the people in their church and they make them feel fearful over what they're doing. And this is what Paul says about people like that. Colossians 2 verse 21 i mean 2020 if with christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world why as though you still live in the world do you submit to regulations do not handle do not taste do not touch referring to the things that shall perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and self-abuse and severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Mm. Right? So Paul's very firm there. He's like, people who have that mentality of just stop, like don't do this. This is why it's going to ruin your life. It's gonna, he's like, it has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's not going to make it any better. At best, you've made that person a Pharisee. At worst, you've condemned them and made them leave the faith, but you haven't done them no favors. Right? Paul is, in essence, bringing, again, to this mind, it's like it's not about trying harder. It's about being a new creation. It's about understanding your spot with Christ, right? So the more I understand the love and the forgiveness of Christ, the more that's going to automatically change me. But in order to do that, I have to understand his holiness to give gravity to his love, right? So that causes me to want to change as opposed to needing to change, which is a very, very different thing, right? And what we see is that that's the only type of relationship that actually has the power to change anybody, right? When I think about all I have to change when it comes to my relationship with the law, I have to change a lot, don't get me wrong, but it's nowhere near the amount I've had to change to be married, right? But I don't look at my, I look at my conformity to the law, and I'm talking about the law of Arizona, the law of the United States. When I think about my conformity to the law, there's no joy there, there's no happiness there, there's only fear of punishment. But when I think about all I've changed to be married, all that I've changed to be with my wife, I don't look at it as a bummer, I look at it as a tremendous joy, 
because the change has made me better and it's drawn me closer to someone that I care for and that accepts me as I am. Yeah, and that's that's hard for a lot of parents and a lot of educators to do um, because uh, there is a lot of fear in, in them of what if I don't use a fear tactic hmm. in this situation? Right. You know, what if I don't? And in pornography circles that we, we travel in the kind of recovery world, th- there's always that fear tactic of you're going to escalate. Hmm. You're going to escalate. You're going to become like this. You're going to become like that. And you hear that over and over. And the rhetoric's been that way for 40 years or so, right. 50 years now it's been like that. Um, and uh, and so a, a lot of guys kind of come in and there's this like, you know, or women and they're like, oh my gosh, I got to change. I got to change. I got to change. You know, and you go, why? And they go, well, because man, it's like, I'm afraid I'm going to, I'm going to just keep going and I'm going to become like this and I'm going to become like that. And, and and they they've heard that and they've been told that and and even though they've been told that maybe for 10 years uh you know they haven't been able to find any peace mm-hmm. at all in in uh their their quote struggles with maybe watching pornography or acting out sexually mm-hmm. in those type of things you right. know and i'm i'm one of those statistics too yeah right so i spent years years trying to stop viewing pornography through fear-based tactics, through making myself feel bad about what I was doing, through listening to sermon after sermon about the consequences of sexual sin, trying to dig up enough fear in my life to stop. And you know what? It never worked. I never was able to stop as a result of that. Um, Even now, like, you know, obviously I still struggle. I still have this battle in my life. But the amount of victory that I've had today in comparison to what I had back then, it's not even comparable. It's, It's night and day the unbelievable amount of work that God has done in my life and how much he's transformed me. And it had nothing to do with fear, right? It was every single time where I was confronted with the gospel and the truth of Christ and his work in my life and seeing that it's for his glory and for his purpose and seeing that he is more pleasurable and better than anything else in this universe. Those are the things that actually began to change me. Um, Fear never did. Mm. Yeah, well, we got to end the podcast, unfortunately, because we get to go teach, yeah, and which is awesome, um, which we love to do. But um, uh, you know, we would say for people probably who have used fear tactics that y- you know you really have to take a look at that and and say, hey, you know, I, you know, c- can we really change, you know, this? Um, because really, when you look at how parents treat, you know. Um, kids too you know with fear tactics those things never work mm. and and in the church you know saying to a, a kid oh man don't be homosexual sexual because God's going to judge you you know and, and, and th- that's a kid who's been at church who loves Jesus you know and everything like that yeah. it just it just develops into crazy things so yeah. um, we can talk about it more but we can't take care check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series take flight and love or lust You can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.